This is Terry Mattingly of Get Religion. If you like our Get Religion podcast with Issues Etc. and all the other work we do, please help us carry on by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. You can make a secure donation at getreligion.org using a charge card or any other form of pledge you want to make. Thanks for listening, and thanks for following Get Religion. Please help us keep doing the work that we do. This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. The story is national headlines. The Washington Post carried this. Marcus Lamb, head of Daystar, a large Christian network that discouraged vaccines, dies after getting COVID-19. Now, had Marcus Lamb not discouraged vaccines, would this be a national story, even if he did die of COVID-19? And does the Washington Post or the other press outlets that have been carrying this story, do they establish that Marcus Lamb himself discouraged vaccines? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. I was fascinated by this story. I went looking through most of the major media that are covering this, and almost all of them are. And I was looking just for a quote from Marcus Lamb himself, the recently deceased Marcus Lamb, that was COVID-related. And I couldn't find one. Could you? Well, I didn't dig through hours and hours of material on their website. What I did was look throughout the pieces and looked for on-the-record quotes from anyone. I think at the very least what we have here is yet another tragic example of what happens when a conservative Christian ministry or parachurch group or whatever has absolutely no plan for dealing with interview requests from the mainstream media. And the whole idea there, of course, is the mainstream media is our enemy, so we won't talk to them, which then leads the mainstream media to have to try to do exactly what you did, which is have to go into this world of what they've stated, either in social media or in their own videos or anything else, and look for a quote. All of this on deadline with, like, say, two to three hours sitting at a desk in the middle of a crowded newsroom, or maybe in COVID era, they might be at home with reasonably fast Wi-Fi to be able to do it. It's not an easy task to do. And I say that as someone who has spent days looking for the relevant material to quote. So we've got all kinds of material drawn from family members and others during recent days on the network talking about his illness and whatever. And all of this, of course, is in the language of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity which, quite frankly, is language that very few mainstream reporters know how to translate. I mean, just for example, the, the sentence you read, the second half of that lead, Lamb's network during the pandemic has made the virus a huge focus, calling it a satanic attack that should not be treated with vaccines. 
I immediately thought to myself, well, if we could find out what he said, did he say that COVID is a satanic attack on humanity? That's something I I could see the Pope saying that, you know, that even the disease is a sign of evil in the world or a sign of the fall of creation or something else. I could see lots of evangelicals and charismatics believing that the COVID disease was somehow represented evil. Or was that a statement that they had said that treating the disease with vaccines was a satanic attack? Were the vaccines the satanic attack? And we have a quote down there saying from their webpage, and when you don't have interviews with anyone else, anyone directly connected to the story, you look all over the website frantically trying to find a quote, and they have a quote from the vaccines, the unauthorized truth begins with a statement that says, what if the most dangerous thing your child could face in life is the very thing you're told by your doctor is safe? That's once again, that's about vaccines, or is it all vaccines? Is it any vaccines? Is it one vaccine more than another? I thought it was interesting that when you find material from Lamb's son, Jonathan, his quote is that he has no doubt that COVID's attack on his father was a work of Satan. And once again, that would be a pretty common charismatic Pentecostal connection to make. I, you know, I've heard people make that sort of statement about, I believe Satan sent cancer to take down my father or my mother because of the good work they were doing for the Lord. All of this is theological nuance, and all of it is it's in like a cloud of uncertainty because of the way Pentecostal people talk and the biblical images they use and the the heightened intensity of the emotional language they use. So what what do you do to try to straighten this out? Well, you really need someone related to the ministry to talk to you. Well, what if they're scared to talk to you? As you and I have discussed many times, there is a solution to that. You say that there's going to be a press conference or there's going to be one Zoom session, and that Zoom session is going to be recorded so that the representative of the ministry, perhaps the this man's wife or his son, they know what they said, they know what they were asked, and everybody else does as well because the whole thing has been recorded. I think that sort of an approach to handling the press is better than just saying, oh, we already know they're going to be hostile, they're going to do a terrible job, and they're going to dunk on us like the people on social media, so let's not talk to anyone and just let them fly blind. I don't think with this kind of story that that's a safe approach to media relations. So you had mentioned the dunking. I'm going to give you a hypothetical, but you're a seasoned journalist. You can probably answer it fairly easily. Had Marcus Lamb been the head of a a Christian television network who had encouraged people to be vaccinated and said, look, let's be responsible, let's let's be vaccinated, mm-hmm. let's take this pandemic seriously, and maybe interviewed people who a- agreed with that particular point of view, would it be in the Washington Post today? It depends on how important a ministry it was. It might simply be a story saying... It's tragic that the following person who did so much to fight COVID among black evangelicals or white evangelicals or someone else has now died of COVID. 
you know, even though they were vaccined, et cetera, et cetera. I can't answer that hypothetical without knowing how important this person is as a news source. I will say this. This person is not going to be on social media with people like like one particular example of dunking. And if people in our listening audience don't understand the term dunking, if they are basketball fans, do, you're familiar with the term posterized. And posterized is when some person is standing under the basket trying to get a charging call and someone flies up over them and slams the ball through the hoop right in their face and it ends up on a poster hanging on your wall for the rest of your life. That's called being posterized. In social media, that has evolved into the word dunking on someone. And dunking presumes that what this person has done or said is so stupid that it doesn't matter if we're being cruel to dunk on them. And so one particular statement from someone who isn't in the world of blue check journalism, but anyway, they just simply said, I won't get into the name here, it says, Marcus Lamb, quote, Lord, please give me a sign. Show me what you think of my ministry telling folks not to get vaccinated in a pandemic, unquote. God, okay, well, if you insist. Well, first of all, we don't know, once again, whether Marcus Lamb ever said that specifically. I was curious to know, several stories described panels on his show, and it was described as if all critics of vaccines and all critics of, of say, the government's approach to vaccines in the current administration, that they all have the same approach. I'm pretty sensitive to this because I have lots of friends that are all over the place on this issue. And you do have people who are totally opposed to vaccines. You then have people who are opposed to one or two of the vaccines, but not others. You then have people that are actually pro-vaccines, but they're very opposed to government mandates. We talked about this a week or two ago. And in some press reports, I've now heard these people being called anti-vaccines, when in reality, they're vaccinated, they're recommending that people get vaccinated, but they're not sure the government should have the power to force religious institutions to mandate vaccines for members of their community. I could also say, by the way, I have no idea what this family was doing in terms of avoiding getting COVID. I mean, it sounds like they used some strange stuff, and it sounds like they used some very common stuff that's actually diseases used for the treatment of COVID. And some of these things are pretty mainstream. I also don't know, I mean, for example, I have a friend who has cancer, and he's chosen to go ahead and get vaccinated, but I know other people undergoing treatments for other diseases are people who, with their doctors, have sincerely decided that getting the vaccine might be a risk to them because of certain allergies. Frankly, I went in for my booster today, and I signed this long sheet of paper that ran me down a list of things wanting to know if I had allergies to certain types of shots and vaccines. Well, there are people out there who have allergies to shots and vaccines, and so a lot of them are staying at home. They're being very careful. They're living under lockdown. They're being very careful with masks. If they're going out and, say, doing radio or television, they're doing so under studio conditions 
where they're like in a separate room with a microphone. There's all kinds of variations on how people are handling this. And frankly, I didn't end the Washington Post story, which is rather short. I didn't end that story with any sense whatsoever of how the members of this family were handling COVID threats in their own life. I certainly came away with a very strong impression of how people are assuming that they did or didn't handle the threat of COVID. I would also think to our listeners, it's very important. And when I write about this at Get Religion, I'll put this up. There also is a lengthy story at Religion News Service written by the veteran Bob Smetana, who has been covering the Nashville scene and religious broadcasters and a host of different types of evangelicals for years. There's a story up at RNS about this tragedy that is infinitely more nuanced, and I think most people would find it to not be an example of dunking on some people during their time of grief. I'm not saying that's what the Washington Post story did. I'm saying that one story is much more sensitive to the views of this particular kind of evangelical-slash-charismatic Christian than the other, and frankly shows more expertise in talking about their world, their lives, and how they talk about their faith. So in that vein, what would you say are the differences between Smitana's piece in RNS and the Washington Post? And I agree with you. I don't think the Washington Post is a dunk job at all. I think it's it's fairly straight reporting, although I wonder about that alleged unquoted quote in the lead as you do as well. But what's the difference between RNS's treatment and the Post's? Well, I thought it was very interesting that the RNS piece gets into this man's work and his relationship with African-American Christians and with Latino Christians and the fact that he had very publicly come out as a critic even of how some Christians have dealt with issues of race and made sure that it was very obvious that his network was taking a position against racism and taking a position understanding why the black church in particular felt attacked in some of the dialogue about Black Lives Matter that made no distinction between things the black church was doing and that, say, secular organizations linked to Black Lives Matters, the organization, were doing. I'll tell you also, I thought Bob Smetana did a much better job of trying to separate the world of evangelicalism from the world of charismatic Pentecostalism, and I think that's crucial. And for listeners' sake, let me run back through a few things that you and I have talked about in the past about this because of one statement that's in the Washington Post piece that's not in the RNS piece. There's this paragraph which, once again, quotes no particular sources, but it just states, white evangelical Christians resist coronavirus vaccines at higher rates than other religious groups in the United States, a phenomenon experts say is bound up in politics skepticism about government and the consumption of alternative media, and unfounded conspiracy claims about vaccine dangers. Well, well, here we go again. There's a lot of things tied up in that language, and it, it really seems like uh, 
a, a simplistic statement of white evangelical syndrome again, that when in doubt, blame white evangelicals, when hidden within that are all kinds of complexities that Ryan Berg, who is someone on the religious left, but a political scientist who's been careful to parse about these things, and we just did a program at the Overby Center in which Ryan took part, along with Daniel Darling and Dr. Marquita Smith and several others, we, we talked about some of the complexities that make the vaccine talk so hard for some people to cover. I mean, for example, 65 and over your old evangelicals are vaccinated is the same rates as anybody else. And young evangelicals tend to be less vaccinated, but young everybody is less vaccinated. And as Ryan has caught some flack for noting at Get Religion and elsewhere, one of the most unvaccinated groups in America are the nothing in particular group within the world of the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated Nothing in particulars, which is a subset of the nuns group that we've talked about here before, they have very low vaccination rates compared to others. Is that a religious group? Because it's a non-religious group, but it's a group that has a particular approach to religion. And most of all, we really don't have a lot of information about the world of charismatic and Pentecostals. And this brings us into, frankly, the world of race and some of the struggles to get people in black churches, particularly black Pentecostal churches, to get vaccinated. There's more complexities, layers upon layers of complexity here. Ryan has noted that if, if you're looking for things that cause people not to be vaccinated, the whole urban versus rural factor in American life is a big factor in whether or not people have access to vaccines, whether they kind of trust their health care networks, and yes, where they stand politically and everything else related to vaccines. So when you have rural versus urban, you have young versus old, you have educated versus uneducated, another huge factor in whether people are vaccinated, and income level goes along very closely with that as income level is connected to rural, urban, educated versus uneducated, etc. All of which is way too complex to put into a clause of information that says white evangelical Christians resist coronavirus vaccines at higher rates than other religious groups in the United States. It's hard to make that simplistic statement. When you look at it on charts, in some cases, some groups within evangelicalism are the same as everybody else, or within a couple of percentage points of differences. So, once again, I'm saying that there are ways to deal with the world of evangelicalism. There are ways to deal, by the way, evangelicalism, white, black, Latino. There are differences among all those groups. Then we have the world of charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity, which is another world I would dare say that if you had a really nuanced poll, you would indeed find out that the world of white, evangelical, and Pentecostal Christians who are in completely independent churches with no connections to major denominations, I'll bet you, yes, that they are vaccinated at a lower rate 
than normal. But that's not the same thing as saying white evangelicals, you know, which takes in the Southern Baptist and a whole lot of other people. And I will freely admit that Pentecostalism, there's a big difference, I would assume, between the Assemblies of God and, once again, these totally independent Pentecostal churches. I hope listeners hear that this is complex stuff, and at some point you really need to pause, spend a couple of paragraphs, and get into the details if you're going to make a claim like that. That's not the kind of language that we see in the RNS piece, where it talks about the degree to which these people were critical of vaccines and that, yes, they took in and allowed people on the air that were vaccine skeptics, and it quotes, you know, a few of those comments from the air. But I think readers will find the RNS piece much more nuanced. Terry, I believe we talked some months ago about a story that somehow became a big story. The church was not large, but the pastor was very outspoken. Mm-hmm. I think it was a tent church down in the southern state, which added to this popular media narrative about the unvaccinated, you know, the picture that everyone wants to see in their mind. And we talked at the time about how this guy is national news because he's the poster boy for the popular media narrative that white evangelicals so broadly defined are somehow standing in the way of progress in the pandemic. Is is Marcus Lamb really a better poster boy for that popular media narrative? Well, I think if you described who he is and who his audience is and and brought up maybe some of the denominations who may frequent his show. I mean, for example, in the RNS piece, there's a very interesting section where someone who is known as being kind of um, a right of center, but more progressive, I, I hate to use that word, but someone who is certainly not viewed as an extremist among evangelicals, uh, the Reverend James Merritt, a former SBD president, and talked about how he had been on his show several times to promote books and that you know, he mentions that they both had a shared love of the University of Georgia football team. And it, it talks about his family. And then it had a representative of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference talked about being on the show and stressing, once again, what I mentioned earlier, how he had a more nuanced version of race and that he had gone out of his way Lamb had gone out of his way to try to increase dialogue among ethnic groups and racial groups within the church on issues of racism in in America. I mean, that to me is just an example of the fact that some of these lines blur. I think we saw some of the simplistic talk that you're discussing, also in discussing, quite frankly, the January 6th riots, where you had tiny little churches in the middle of nowhere, many of whom, I might add, want to be controversial on social media. They want to be in the headlines. They want to be on radio and television and draw as much attention as possible for the wildness of their views because that's just like oxygen to them. It helps them perceive their own importance and grow. In this case, we are dealing with a guy that has a television network, and he has friends like Franklin Graham, and he has others, and these may not be people with it who agree with him on everything. 
I think it's safe to say that Sam Rodriguez, the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, probably didn't agree with Lamb on everything. But I guarantee you that Rodriguez understands that among Latino evangelicals and charismatics, views of the vaccines and views of COVID are quite complex and nuanced. I guarantee you that some of the black Pentecostals who came on this network and know this man well, I'll bet you more than a dollar that they're aware of how nuanced their audiences are. So that just blurs all kinds of lines in politics and everything else. I don't think our listeners need to be reminded that Latinos and blacks are not marching in a, the same parade with a lot of white Christians when it comes to political party affiliation and their views of, let's be honest, President Donald Trump, for example. So the world of race, the world of theology, the world of independent churches versus major denominations like the Assemblies of God, the SBC, the Church of God in Christ, a major black Pentecostal group. At some point, it might help to spend a paragraph or two and see if you could quote some facts on that. Now, I'm sad to say that's not the kind of thing you can do in a single paragraph in a 700-word story written on two to three hours worth of deadline. That's something editors want journalists, reporters to be able to do, and you just can't do it sometimes. So we need some follow-up here. And Ryan Berg would not be a bad person to interview. What are media assumptions about politics and religious anti-vax views? What specifically do you think, well, if you were sitting down to write yeah. the playbook, what is it? Well, let me go back to a completely different event in religious history and give you just a snapshot of media confusion. A long time ago, I was asked by MSNBC, of all people, to be the color commentator for the Promise Keepers rally on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., probably the second largest event in the history of America held on that space. And halfway into the day, the MSNBC coverage was all focusing on feminism, being critical of the group. And finally, someone said, why are there so many black church leaders on that dais? Why is every other speaker an African-American or a Latino? When this is clearly a religious right event that's here to attack the Clinton administration and attack the Democrats and pump up the Republicans. And I spent the whole day trying to explain to them that, you know, there are a lot of black Christians and Latino Christians who have very conservative views on marriage and sexuality and even gay rights. And they certainly have very conservative views when it comes to men needing to uphold their families and be strong for their families and support their families. And that's why, like every other address, was about workaholism 
you know, and the breakup of the family and lots of subjects that had nothing to do with politics and the kind of, once again, the, the template, the cookie cutter that the network was trying to jam this event into. Well, what we're talking about today is remarkably similar. I don't think that white evangelicals, who we all know backed Donald Trump, I don't think that calling that ghost up again and kind of hinting at political tribalism being the simplest answer, or even religious tribalism like white evangelical in scare quotes or something, I don't think that helps readers and listeners truly understand how complex the vaccine and COVID debates are in pews and pulpits across America. And quite frankly, I mean, here's a point I've, I've made a hundred times, but I'll make it again. Yes, white evangelicals are having fights with each other about vaccines and about masks and about COVID. But the fact that they're fighting with each other is evidence that they're not united on these topics. When the basic media assumption is, like I said, that they're all marching under the same banner in opposition to vaccines, masks, social distancing, and all the other things that have come with this era. These groups are divided. There are tensions in black churches. There are tensions in Latino churches. There are tensions in most white evangelical and charismatic churches. There may not be tensions in extreme examples of independent churches whose pastors want desperately to get onto national TV shows to spout their views. But that's not evidence that all of American white evangelicalism, one of the largest groups in American religion, are united on this. What we're seeing is evidence of how divided they are on these topics, not united. Early on in our conversation today, you talked about the danger of a church, or in this case, a parachurch organization, kind of battening down the hatches or circling yeah. the wagons when the media does come calling and being ill-prepared to answer media questions or even to engage the media. A lot of them simply assume that silence is safer yeah. than doing interviews. What are your thoughts there? Well, I've encountered this on the religious left and the right, so I don't think this is strictly a matter of conservatism. There are a lot of religious leaders for whom the only good story is a story that doesn't exist. When you're talking about an issue, a dividing point, a trend in their denomination or whatever, they believe the only good story is one that doesn't exist or only includes their point of view. And back when I taught at Denver Theological Seminary and when I have talked to some other religious conventions, I try to shoot this down as much as I can. When a story is important, when a story has headline appeal, when a story affects thousands of people, you are not going to make the story go away. It's going to be in the newspapers. 
it's going to be in your local television coverage and maybe even national coverage if it's colorful enough. You can't make it go away. What you must do is give them on the record attributed material from people linked to your ministry that they can quote and know that if 50% of the story is based somehow on the information you offer and try to defend and the views of the people close to you, half of the story representing your worldview is a victory. You're not going to be able to wave a magic wand and make the story go away. And gosh, if we could only get religious leaders to understand that, it would help press coverage of religion a great deal. So you're really talking there about being accessible, aren't you? Well, it's having a plan. You're not going to allow them access to everybody in your ministry. In this case, you're talking about the death of the leader of a family. But you are going to have to have someone go out there on the record and answer questions like, was he vaccinated? If he wasn't vaccinated, what was the family's plan for avoiding COVID? Or did your family agree with all of the people who were featured in programs on your network? I can think of a lot of other questions implied by the RNS story and the Washington Post story and others. You can think of the questions that would need to be answered, and they're going to try to answer them. And if you don't speak on the record, you're assuming that they're going to find good answers, that they're going to find fair-minded answers. And I don't think you can assume that. You have to join in the debate and make sure that the press has a chance to quote your views accurately. And yes, record them yourself, put them on your own website, do whatever you want to do to make sure that if the press doesn't quote you accurately, you show that they didn't. But you show that by recording the interviews that were done and expecting people to behave in a professional manner. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.